Good morning. I hope that you've all had a Merry Christmas and enjoyed whatever New Year's celebrating you did to, to welcome in this new year. Um, it's pretty incredible. It's already 2023. It's just wow. It's already it's already New Year's. Right? It's, this past year has gone by like really really fast. Um, I don't know about y'all, but like that this past year for me has been just a blur. So much stuff has happened. I got married. I got a new job. Graduated college. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> Uh, but 2023, that too, that's wild. When, when Ryan and I, just for a little bit of context, when we first joined the church, Ryan was, the first time we visited, he was 18 and I was 20. And now he is 22, 20, 22, about to turn 23, and I'm about to turn 25. That's wild. Um, but anyways, uh, so it, it's always this time of year that, you know, I can look back and realize that my parents were always right when they said time just goes by so much faster as you get older. And I realize every year how much I didn't really understand that last year. Um, <laughs> but, but so much has happened for us as a church, for us as, as people individually, but, but our church, and even in the last year, we've seen so much growth and in more ways than just numbers. We, we've experienced the love of one another, just building each other up and I mean, we're looking for a new building, which is, again, just wild. Um, and, and we could talk for hours about how in the last year, how much has gone on, or rather, how much has gone wrong in the world outside of us. I mean, we just never exhaust that topic. But, but New Year's, um, New Year's is a, is a great time for us in, in a lot of ways to, to take a moment to to reflect, to, to reflect on our lives, both in the last year and, and our, on our lives as Christians in general. And, and in a lot of ways, sometimes doing that can be, can be bittersweet. Um, it, can be, it can be bitter when we look back and we, we think about the, the times in our lives that have been hard, the, the losses that we've endured, the, the stuff going on in the world around us. And it, can, it can get us down. It can make us, you know, depressed that there's so much sin and brokenness in our world. But it can also be really sweet because New Year's is Bill's birthday. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. It can be sweet during this time of year to really look back on our lives and, and to think about what the Lord has done for us. Because we can, we can see, and, and again, another topic that would we wouldn't be able to exhaust is the grace and the provision that the Lord has has poured into our lives, not only in the last year, but our entire lives as Christians. And, and it's good to do that. It's good to do that as a church, but it's also really good to do that individually. It's, it never fails that this time of year is, is preyed on by, by multiple service industries, various service industries, to, to convince people to commit themselves to, to self-betterment, right? to, to reflect on your life and... and and say, you know, you gotta, you gotta make yourself better, right? You should get in the gym, or you should, you know, start a diet, learn Spanish. Everybody needs to know Spanish, um, or just start various habits that would, that would make you better. And every single year, millions of people commit to these various things, only to fail by February, if they make it that far. 
And I'm, I'm not passing any judgment. I've done that myself multiple times and can't tell you how many times I've tried to learn how to play guitar and then I forget that I own a guitar. But, but I think one of the things that we can do as, as Christians is, is we can be pretty prone to take that, that same kind of approach to our, our spirituality. We know that it's God's will for our life to, to be sanctified continuously. But if, if we were to all take an honest look at our, at our lives in the past year, I don't think there's a single person in the room who could honestly say that it was characteristic of, of continued growth all year long. I think if we were to be honest, if we were to look at our lives, we would instead probably find that there were times in the last year that we were despondent, that we were spiritually depressed, there may have been times last year where there was a sin that we really wanted to overcome but seemed to continuously overcome us. There may have even been times where we, a sin that we thought we had put to death revived itself in, in order to cause us to stumble. We can, we can look back at our lives, not only in the last year, but as Christians, I think we can, it's true of us, we can look back at our lives and see not characteristic success continued, but oftentimes, more than not, failure. Failure after failure, and our, we can see our zeal ebbing and then, and then flowing again, but then ebbing, and, and times where we've, we've wanted to, to really pursue spirituality and, and, and piety, whatever it is, but failing. And as a Christian, we might also feel the need at this time of year or any time of the year to make resolutions, to, to do better, to, to, really, to really pick ourselves up by our, our bootstraps and, you know, I'm going to start reading my Bible more, I'm going to start praying more, I'm going to do all the things that a Christian should be doing. And, and I don't think it's, it's, I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing to make resolutions. I think they can be helpful for us. But the unfortunate reality in, in resolutions is that at some point, they're going to fail. At some point in your life, you're, you're going to fall short in whatever resolution you, you try to make to be a better Christian. And that can be a very disappointing reality for us. We, we can find ourselves trying trying so hard to to be better Christians, but then failing over and over. And that can get really, really disappointing. And so when this, when this happens to us enough, we can eventually get to the point where we ask the question, why? Why is this happening? Why is it so hard for me to, to grow? Why is it so hard for me to really finally commit to prayer every day? Why is it so hard for me to, to sit down and read my one-year Bible plan without falling a month behind before February? And if, if we do that enough, if we find ourselves in that situation enough, we'll, we'll eventually come to the point where we might even ask the question, what does this mean about my salvation? What, what, what does this mean about my position as a Christian if, if I just continuously fail over and over and I, I, I try and I try, but, I, but I, can't, I can't get better? Can I really be a Christian if I continue to see sin in my life? 
And so this morning, I thought in, in light of the new year that it would be beneficial for us to, to try and answer that question, that the question of why. And in doing so, I thought we would get back to one of the pretty basic roots of Christianity and, and drive home one of Paul's key points in, in the book of Romans in, in chapter 7. And so we're going to try to answer that question, the question of, of why. Why, if, if we're believers, if we've been justified, set apart, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, why do we share a common experience of daily failure and a daily need of forgiveness and why do we struggle so to answer that question if you turn with me we're going to read some of chapter 7 of Romans and a little bit into chapter 8 starting in verse 21 so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right evil lies close at hand For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And so this morning, in an attempt to answer that question, I'm going to do something that I don't usually do. I'm going to try to keep this relatively simple. Um... Paul, in this passage, and leading up to this passage, is answering uh, that question for us. He's answering the question for us, why do we struggle as Christians? And and in order to keep it simple, I'm going to just say what Paul says without mincing words. The answer, the simple answer, is because we're sinners. The reason that we struggle is because we're sinners. Yet, on the other hand, we're also justified. We're also saints. So right off the bat, you can see how there might be some conflict between those two realities, those two natures that are true of us as, as Christians. To be one and, and both is, is to, to see conflict between these two things, holiness and, and sin, have no part with one another. And so if we as Christians experience sin, but yet we're also supposed to be saints, well, of course there's going to be some conflict. Of course there's going to be a struggle between these two, these two natures. And, and we are sinners. On the one hand, as R.C. Sproul famously said, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And so if we see sin in our lives, the reason is, is because we are sinners. But yet on the other hand, we are saints. 
Paul, multiple places, as he addresses the church at the beginning of all his letters, he calls us saints, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Rome, to the, to the saints of, of the church of Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith. We've been set apart, unified with Christ, reconciled to God and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. Yet, we still sin. So again, and you can see already, the answer is pretty simple. That's why we struggle as, as believers, because there is still sin in our lives. But while I would love to just you know, keep it that simple, um, I can't really keep it that simple. So before we just kind of blow by that, um, I wanted to take a little while to, to look at a few practical reasons why we, we struggle. And then we'll, we'll move on to kind of break it down more theologically. And so, first off, one of the, the more practical reasons why as believers we find ourselves struggling so much with our, with our sin and our lives is because we want to please God. In verse 21, you can see that Paul has a desire to do good. He has a desire in himself to, to please God, to do good. He says, when I want to do right. And so characteristic in Paul's life is a desire to do right. He has a desire for the good things of God. He has a desire to, to see righteousness, to uphold truth, to, to love as, as Christ is loved. And, and as Christians, we want those things too. God in his mercy has revealed to us what is good. And he has implanted in us that desire for the good things of God. He has implanted in us a desire for truth, for love, to, to love the church, the brethren, to, to provide for them in any way that we can, to uphold others' values in higher regard than our own. And we recognize that those things are good, not only for us, but for others. And, and God has, in revealing that to us, shown us that that these are the things which are our best. These are the things which we are to love. And by his grace has caused us to love those things. But that desire, again, doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from, from ourselves. We don't drum up that desire. We don't teach ourselves to have a desire for good things. Paul, earlier in, in verse 18, has already stated, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh, in our flesh, in us, apart from Christ, there is no good thing. There is no desire for goodness. There's no desire for, for the good things of God. And we, we can see in our world people experiencing this reality. They, they may have an outward look of, of piety or, or some righteousness, but, but if you were to really ask the question of why do they do good things, the, the answer would always be some form of self-centeredness, self-ambition, self-loving. And so as, as unbelievers and in our flesh, there is nothing good that we can do. There's no good that we desire. Back in chapter 3, Paul, he hammers that point home. There's no one who seeks after God. In and of ourselves, we, we have nothing to offer or to, to seek after God with. 
And that is the state of our flesh. And it is still the current state of our flesh. In our flesh, there is nothing that is good. There is nothing in our flesh that desires the good things of God. There's nothing in our flesh that wants to do good. In our flesh is, is corruption, is sin. And so it's, again, no surprise that if by the Spirit, God has implanted us a desire for good things, yet we have the flesh, there's a conflict there. There's going to be tension. And because we desire to please God, but we don't always do the right things, we still sin, we struggle. And yet another practical reason as to, as to why we struggle is not only because we desire to please God, but because we fear God. One of the things in chapter 3 that, that Paul explicitly stated of the unbeliever is that there's no fear of God before their eyes. But God in, in us, his people, has implanted in us a, a fearful reverence for him. And, and again, in, in this passage, in our passage, you can hear in, in the first few verses a, a sense of distress in Paul's voice. He says, he's, he's speaking of this, of this war, and, and eventually he gets down to verse 24. He says, wretched man that I am. There's, there's a distress in Paul's, in Paul's argument, in his, in his speaking, that, that he understands because Paul knows God. Paul knows who God is. He knows that God is holy. He knows that, that God is set apart, perfect and righteous. He's holy in, in the most unfathomable way. He is the creator of the universe. The sovereign Lord who has ordained everything that has come to pass in our lives. And Paul, with a better understanding than I could hope to have, knows the holiness of God. He has experienced it when he saw Christ on the road to Damascus, when he revealed himself to him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Paul knows that God is holy and pure. And when we consider the holiness of God, and I mean really consider it in its full regard, the command that's given to us to be holy as he is holy can be a terrifying thing. Because God is so much more holy than we can fathom. And for us to be called to be holy as he is holy is, is a call that, that is so much greater than we could ever do, especially in light of our flesh. When we, when we see and consider the holiness of God, and then we see and consider our flesh, we see that we fall so, so short of that command. That in us, there is no reaching that command. There is no being holy as God is holy. Because again, in our flesh, it's corruption. It's rot. There's nothing good. And when you compare that to the, the purity, the love, the holiness, the righteousness, the goodness of God, there, there's, a, there's a gap that's 
impossible to cross. And so, if we fear God and yet fall short in our daily lives, of course we struggle. We struggle with, with, with things of, 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 our, of our spirituality. We find ourselves desiring to do better and, and, and wanting the good things of God, but we, we continue to see ourselves falling short. And so we strive after holiness and, and goodness because it's the desires that God has given us. So, so again, if God has given us those desires, why, why, why would we still struggle? Shouldn't he have given us the ability to do so also? If God has called us to do these things, shouldn't we have it in and of ourselves to, to accomplish these things? And again, pretty rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. Because, because we, in our, in our flesh, we can't accomplish these things. We can't be holy as God is holy. We're too weak. We're indecisive. We're unreliable. We ebb and flow. Our, our desires change by the hour. And which brings us to the very final and practical reason as to why as Christians then we struggle. And, and it's because God loves us. The, the reason that we as believers struggle in our lives and find ourselves seemingly swimming upstream our entire lives is because God loves us. Because something that we're prone to do so, so frequently is to stop seeking God and seek in and of ourselves the ability to accomplish the commands that God has commanded us to do. We'll stop looking to, to God and Christ and we'll look to, to our flesh, to our own ability to be good. We'll look to our, our flesh to, to try so hard to start praying more and reading our Bible more and, and being more honest and, and putting sin to death. But because God loves us so much, he doesn't allow us to succeed in that because Christ and, and God knows that in our flesh there is no hope. And so he squanders any ability of ourself to be successful in our flesh because he loves us. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll get there eventually. He says, starting in verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. You see, God knows that if we were to continuously trust in our flesh, if we had the ability to to work in our flesh to achieve the things of righteousness, to achieve holiness, 
that we would not trust in Christ. And like Paul said, in our flesh, there's nothing that's good. So if we did that, ultimately what we would find is, is not failure daily, but failure as we stand before God himself. Because when, if we approach God in the throne room of judgment and say, God, look to my works, what I have done, the only response we're going to get is it's not enough. You've fallen short. I've called you to be holy. You're not holy. All you bring to me are filthy rags. If you listen to this quote by John Calvin in speaking on the, the life of the Christian, he says, Unless our weaknesses are regularly displayed to us, we easily overestimate our own virtue being by nature inclined to attribute all good things to our own doing. Thus, we're drawn into a foolish and inflated view of our flesh. And then, trusting in our flesh, we brazenly exalt ourselves before God. There's no better method for God to curb such arrogance than by demonstrating to us, through experience, our weakness and frailty. Thus humbled, we learn to call on his strength. Indeed, the holiest among us know that they stand by God's grace alone and not by their own virtues. You see, God in his love for us brings us to a place of humility, showing us the weakness and frailty of our flesh, not to, to simply humiliate us, but that we would turn to Christ but that we would turn to the one who has accomplished the commands that, that we could never do. Because our path as Christians is one of humility. It's one of relying on the work of someone else. And that someone else being Christ, who has perfectly fulfilled the commands of God. And so, like Paul says then we boast not in ourselves, but we boast only in the cross. And because God loves us, he, he brings us to that point where, where that is our only hope, our only call, and desires that that would be where we stay in our Christian lives until he comes again and restores us to himself. So again, obviously, that's the case. That's true of our lives. We're going to struggle. We're going to see a struggle of, of sin still in our lives. We're going to see a struggle of constantly being humbled under the, the loving hand of God to, to force ourselves to trust in Christ and His righteousness alone. But that shouldn't dishearten us. It should only encourage us. Because as we see more and more our flesh and our sinfulness, and we see more and more the love of Christ, we should, we should rejoice and be glad that, that he has done that for us, that he has gone to the cross and died and paid the full wrath of God for our sins. And so I would ask you all this morning, is there a way in which in the last year, in the last week, the last day, that you've been trusting in your flesh that you've been looking to your own righteousness, your own ability to, to do good. Because if so, then I would, I would plead with you. As Paul says, there's nothing good in your flesh. Relinquish that, 
that hold on, on your own righteousness and give it up to Christ. Because in doing so, and, and in doing so, and there alone will you actually see the love of God. In doing so, there you'll actually experience peace from your struggles. And so we've gone, we've gone through a couple practical reasons, but I wanted to go back and kind of break this down a little more theologically. And, and really, simply put, Paul, in, in this passage and, and leading up to this passage, is breaking down for us the, the idea that we have as Christians these two natures, like I said before, that are not only in conflict with each other, but that are at war with each other. And so I'm sure, I'm sure as good reformers, you're all familiar with Luther's uh, famous phrase, simuliustus et peccator, right? Okay, so we'll move on. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> if, if not, it, simply put, simul means simultaneously, justus means just, justified, righteous, et, and, and peccator means sinner. So all together in totem, simultaneously just and sinful. This, that phrase is one of the foundations that, that sparked the Reformation. It's one of the foundations of the Reformation as a whole. That as Christians, we are simultaneously justified and yet still sin, sinners. And, and what, what he's not saying, what Paul's not trying to explain to us is that we're not both at the same time and at the same relationship sinful sinners and yet also justified. You can't be the same way. But, but on the one hand, from one perspective, there is still sin in our lives. But on the other hand, from one perspective, we are saints because we have put our faith and our trust in the finished work of Christ. And I really, again, I don't really need to do too much more explaining than that because, because you all know what I'm talking about. You've all experienced that in your lives, that a love for the good things of God, which comes from the Spirit, but yet also a, a desire to gratify your flesh. And, and Paul here is, is doing just that. He's speaking experientially. He's, he's saying, so I find it that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. It, and he says it's a, it's a law, that it's, it, it's something that, that is constant. Another word for law, the Greek word nomos, would, would be principle. And Paul finds it a principle that when he wants to do good, Evil is always right there close at hand. And that, that word really means something that is established. It's a fact in reality. When we as believers, when Paul, when he desires to do good, always finds that evil is right there close at hand seeking to, to, to make him stumble, to sin instead. And, and that right there, that tension in, in his life, between these two natures, is at the core of our struggle as believers. And we, we experience this with Paul daily. I mean, how often have you made it a point to really start praying more? To really start making make it a point. I'm going to pray 30 minutes every morning. But then you, you may do it for, for a week, but then you, you taper back again. How often have you decided to, to read the Bible every day or read more, stay in God's word more, but then after doing it maybe for a week, 
you fall short, you taper back, you stop. Things get busy. How often do we find it that when we desperately want to put sin to death in our lives, that it becomes that much harder for us to resist the temptation of it? This is what Paul's getting at. This is our everyday experience as Christians. When we want to do good, when we desire to put sin to death, it becomes that much harder for us to do it. We, we struggle that much more. But that, that other nature, that nature of sin, that is our flesh. It's, it's our flesh seeking to cause us to stumble. And Paul, again, understanding this, he, in his desperation, he moves on. He, he says, wretched man that I am. Paul, in seeing his flesh, in seeing his inability, when he wants to do good, evil lies close at hand, he cries out in desperation, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And, and it's, it's unclear if Paul is exactly referencing this, but nevertheless, it's a perfect analogy to see what our, our flesh truly is. In, in his day, there was a tribe near Tarsus, his hometown, that in order to execute a murderer, what they would, what they would do is they would tie a, the corpse of the person that they murdered to the murderer. And, and over time, the decay and the rot of that dead body being tied to them would, would travel to them, would, the rot would corrupt their own flesh, and it would eventually kill them. And that is the perfect image of our flesh. Our flesh clings to us. When we're in this life, it ever seeks to corrupt us, to spread its rot to us daily. And so the result for us, too, is desperation. With Paul, we cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this? We cry out, my sin, like David, is ever before me. In Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We feel the weight, the burden of this flesh that clings to us. We feel that desperation that Paul feels when we're truly faced with our sin. It's all we can feel. But more often than not, something that we, we would feel, what we do feel as Christians, is discouragement. Often when we feel the weight of our sin, it weighs us down. And it's in those times when, we're, when we see our sin that we're, we're led to those questions where we really question our salvation. Where we're led to that point where we're like, I've, I've been struggling with this sin for so long. Is, it, is there still a chance that I'm even saved? Is it possible that I could even be a Christian? I still struggle with this sin. And it's in these times that our flesh will lead us to doubt. To doubt the grace of God that's important to our lives. To doubt our eternal security and our, our right standing with, with the God of the universe. And so we'll, we'll strive to do better. We'll strive to, to do those things that are good. But that, that only brings us down more because we fail. 
And we can often find ourselves as Christians in that point where we feel like we're on a treadmill. We're, we're running, we're running, we're running, but we don't ever leave the same place. We never get out of that point where we can get past our sin. And that's an exhausting place to be. A place where we, where we feel weary and heavy laden, exhausted with having to struggle with our sin that we can't seem to get over. And so if you feel that this morning, if you feel the weight of your sin keeping you, weighing you down, if you feel like you've been beaten down by the waves of life in the past year, in the past day, in the past month, if you feel like you've sinned one too many times, and there's no way that God can forgive you again, there's no way that you could turn to Christ begging for forgiveness again, if that's you, if you feel that this morning, I would call you to listen to these words from Christ in, in Matthew. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, those words aren't just for unbelievers. Those words are for you. Every day when you feel weighed down by the throes of life, Christ says, come to me. If you feel in a constant battle, worn out from your sin, Christ says, come to me. He says, come to me when you are weary, when you're heavy laden, when the corruption of the world has gotten you depressed, despondent, and I will give you rest. You can't find it anywhere else. There's nothing in the world out there that could give you rest. There's nothing in your flesh that could give you rest, but Christ can give you rest. And so if you want that rest, if you want to feel at rest from your sin, then all you need to do is turn to Christ. Take your yoke upon, uh, take his yoke upon you. Cast your burdens, your anxieties, your, your troubles, and your sin upon him. And he will give you rest. He calls you. He draws you. He desires that you would turn to him. And I promise you, if you do that, he will not turn you away. Because, because he loves you. And his desire is for your good. And in him, you will find rest for your soul. And so Paul, from this point, transitions. And, and the only obvious response to such a glorious truth is what he says in verse 25 when he says, Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christ will. God has through Jesus Christ. I don't have to worry about my sin weighing me down because I can, I can lay it on Christ. He has paid for my sins. He has pulled me up out of the muck and the mire of my flesh and set me on dry ground with Christ.
and he has done so by the imputation of Christ. And, and, and through that, we have, because of what Christ has done through his work on the cross, a bold confidence to go before him, to stand before him, and call him not only my God, but my Father. And, and so Paul, he, he, he recognizes this, and, and he moves on from, from that to, to say in chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to hear that and not only just understand it, but feel that. I want you to to really think about your flesh, your sin, and then think about the glorious truth that for you, if you trust in Christ, there is no condemnation for you in that sin. Because of the work of Christ, because of what Christ has done, because of our Redeemer, we, we don't have to worry. There is no condemnation when we stand before God in the throne room of judgment. We don't have to worry, will he accept me? We know that there is no condemnation for us. And, and, and how? Why? Paul explains it for us. He goes on, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How how has it done that? Because God has done what the law, the law of sin and death, could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, Christ came and lived the perfect life under the law that we never could, that we didn't, that we still don't. And after doing that, after being perfect, he chose to go to the cross, to die on the cross, to take upon himself the full wrath of God for our sins. And then give us his righteousness. And then not only that, but he has risen again. And because he has risen, we have confidence we know that we are justified because Christ's work was truly accomplished on that day he truly paid for the wrath of God and saved you from your sin if you just believe and and that's the work of God that's what Christ has done he did what was impossible for us through the law he did what was impossible for the law to do for us he saved us and if if you find yourself in a point where you haven't understood that or believe that, I would call you to simply trust in Christ. The only thing for you today, if you don't know Christ, if you don't understand what I've been talking about, about the freedom that, that we have from, our, from condemnation in Christ, then trust in Christ. He has accomplished the work. And if you believe in his name, your sins will be imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to you. And so then, the, the question for, for us would be, how, how should we respond then? What are we supposed to do now that we know these things? Do we just, we just sit now? Because we know we're, we're good? You know, we don't have to worry about anything? Well, no. But we, 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 we move on. We, we, we walk the walk set before us. We live 
as, as often as we can unto the calling that Christ has called us to. Back in verse, back in verse 21, excuse me, verse 23, Paul says, I see it in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind. So, so if we were to ask the question, what do we do? The first thing that we should recognize is, is what is true. If we're going to fight the battle that, that's put before us, we need to understand how that battle is, is fought. And, and as Paul has, has put, that battle is fought primarily, predominantly, in our mind. As Paul has said, we don't struggle with flesh and blood, but we struggle with the spirits and principalities of evil in, around us. The fight for, for sin and against sin takes place in our, our minds. So then, if that's the case, what should we do? Well, in chapter 3 of Colossians, Paul puts it pretty simply. And in verse 1 he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, if the, if the battle takes place in our minds, then what do we do? We set our minds on the things that are above. We set our minds on the things of Christ. We remember what Christ has done. We call to mind the good news of the gospel. And we're, what Paul says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We call to mind that our Lord, who has saved us, is seated at the right hand of God, ever living and pleading for us, praying for us, that we would continue on in our lives, not growing weary, not growing heavy laden, but trusting in His finished work. And in addition to that, we, we set our minds on, on our hope that is to come. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. We set our minds on the good news that, that though, yes, for the rest of our lives here on this earth, we're going to struggle. For the rest of our lives, we're going to feel the, the tension between our flesh and the spirit. We're going to fall short. We're going to have to turn to Christ. But one day, Christ will return. And on that day, when he appears, we will be like him. On that day, we will no longer struggle with our flesh. We'll no longer feel the weight of our sin burying us. But we will be free, finally and forever, in Christ. Just like Paul says in, in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And so as Christians, when we continue to, to call to mind the gospel, the good news of Christ, Paul later on in Colossians goes on to talk about what we, how we should live. But that comes from, from understanding, from hoping in Christ, from believing the gospel, from turning to Christ in our sin. And, and it's by this and this alone that we will walk according to the Spirit, by setting our mind on the things of God.
and, and in doing so, our gratitude and our affection for the things of God, for what he has done for us, will inspire us to love as Christ has loved us. It will inspire us to walk as Christ has walked. And, and that overflow of gratitude for, for his love, from that, that everything else will come. And so, so we'll aim to do that. We'll aim to be holy. Ever remembering that it, it's Christ and Christ alone. That is our source of holiness. And so you're going to fail. You're going to continue to fail. You're going to backslide. You're going to sin. And, and you're going to find yourself in a position where all you can do is turn to Christ. But after you've ended up in that position where all you can do is turn to Christ so many times, the thing that you'll eventually come to realize is that you never left that place. That's where we stayed. So trust in Christ. Cast your burdens on him, and he will give you rest. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.